Hello and welcome to the O&M Stockroom. We are your hosts, Brian McGarry and Ken O'Malley. Tonight is episode 21 of Complimentary Cinema. If you are new to the channel, Complimentary Cinema is a program where we review and discuss films you can watch for free that are available on YouTube. Please be warned, we discuss these films in detail, so consider this a full spoiler alert. So this was uh, my week to pick the film, and uh, if you're new to the channel, we uh, we basically just scroll, scroll through the uh, YouTube free movie selection and just kind of pick something that looks good that we haven't seen before. We trade every other week, and uh, this week I picked Be Afraid from 2017, directed by Drew uh, Gabruski and written by Caleb Brown and Gerald Mott. So yeah, this is a movie you picked. It's a uh, so <laughs> so uh, so uh, let's okay. So cast the characters in uh, Be Afraid. Uh, we've got Brian Krause as Doctor John Chambers, Jamie Page as Heather Chambers, Louis Hertham as Chief Martin Collins, Jared Abram <laughs> Abrahamson. As Ben Chambers, Michelle Hurd as Christine Booth. Uh, let's see, Noel uh, Coet as Nikki Collins, and let's see who else is actually uh, Callie Thorne as Annabelle Fletcher. I think those are pretty much like the main players there. Oh, and then you got uh, yep, I think that's it. So anyway, uh, Dean Booth. Did you say Dean Booth? Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that guy. Kevin. Kevin Graveau, Graveau I think. It's a French name. Yeah. So that's a, that's your cast of characters, roughly. Um, so this is a, a spooky film, Ken. It is a spooky film. Um, I believe I coined the term a Hallmark horror film. A Hallmark horror film. This, uh, uh, in a nutshell, Be Afraid is what you get. When you take a bunch of television actors and writers and directors who haven't really done much of note, uh, who would be better suited to a Hallmark holiday special, as a, and then give them the task of making a spooky film. Yeah, there's there's a lot of issues with this movie, um, <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll we'll start off with just uh, a, a general description of the movie. So we, we, we do start in the middle of a lightning storm, uh, with a family who is in turmoil. There's a, a father and a mother and they're freaking out about the storm and, and telling their, their kid to stay in the room, stay in the bed. Everything's going to be okay. The dad is getting the shotgun out and saying they're coming. And, uh, he's got this fantastic voice. Uh, it sounds almost not real because it's like it's low. Uh, it's uh, he's like okay. So 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 the father Dean Booth yeah. this is the Booth family that we're in. Dean Booth speaks like uh, Barry White, but um, like if somebody was doing like a Barry White impersonation, is the best way that I can put it. It's e- it's even just hard to explain. It's very strange. It's very baritone. It's very baritone. It's very baritone. It's very low, but it has an artificial quality to it. It's a very singularly distinct voice. I love it and hate it at the exact same time. I think it's great because it was very distinct, especially since his character was like a little unhinged. You know. Yes. It worked perfectly. So you know he's he's kind of in a frantic 
you know, oh, like they're out, they're coming, they're coming. And he's going outside with a shotgun in the middle of a storm. Right uh, out into a cornfield. Yeah. So it's, uh, we don't know exactly what's going on at this point. So uh, he he's going after something that is supposedly coming and he's he's scared it's going to get his family. Is it a scarecrow? Are the gophers eating his crops? We don't know. No idea. There is some foggy apparitions in the cornfield. There's some shadow figures that we don't clearly see that are kind of following him around. And uh, in the midst of everything, this shadow figure appears in the bedroom with the child. M's. M's booth. Yes. And uh, the mom cries for the dad to come back. And he hears their cries and he hears the sound of glass breaking and the child is gone. Vanished without a trace. And, you know, we just randomly skipped to four years later. And then you get this great close up of a grizzled white man. And my, my first thought was like, that father really has not gotten enough son the last four years. <laughs> It's very abrupt. It is very abrupt, very sudden. But it is, you know, but it's... Why four years? Well, we just really jump ahead, don't we? We're they? establishing a pattern. Um, a long-term pattern of a, a long-term events pattern. in the town. Four years does seem a bit extreme. For the purposes of this film, absolutely. So... Yeah, we're, we we come to on this completely different family who apparently has just moved to town. It's the same town that the, the first scene took place in, we find later on. Um, and this family is uh, mom and dad. The dad's a doctor. And they have a, a son who's about, I don't know, we said seven or... Yeah, it's a, Dr. John Chambers. His son, Nathan, who... They they kind of insinuate that he's around five, but he definitely looks like he's pushing eight. So also there is uh, the wife, Heather, who is uh, a stay-at-home mom, and she's pregnant, it turns out, with another child. And the two of them also have another son. It's uh, uh, from Dr. Chambers' first marriage, uh, an older son who is in college who we find out about later. But that's kind of the family that, that we, we follow for the rest of the story. Little nuclear family. You know, we see John taking a tour of the community college that is trying to pass off as a hospital in this film. You know, you get a good, you know, great view of like the, the pool hallway with all the nice tiles and everything. Uh, you see that the, the wife of uh, Dean Booth, the guy who lost his daughter Ems in the first scene, his wife is a receptionist at this uh, hospital, which is also where uh, Dr. Chambers' son comes looking for him when he decides to leave college. Right. So he, he's, you know, he's, he's apparently on the line of getting thrown out. So he decides to leave of his own volition. And so he shows up and the dad says, you know, what, it, what how much do you need? Apparently he only comes around when he needs money, but it turns out he just needs a place to be because... He's not going to school anymore. So the dad's pretty much doesn't give him a whole lot of trouble about it. Um, all things considered, he just kind of uh, gives him a hug and, you know, encourages him to 
get his act together. But other than that, it's not very uh, extreme. You would think a... a so if I were a father and I was paying for my son to go to college and he just fairly nonchalantly drops out and then comes to see me to talk to me about it and doesn't really give me that good of a reason why I would have a stronger reaction. I mean, I think than like, this guy did. You got to think too, like the dad went through a lot of school to become a doctor and a like, lot. and he has, doesn't have much helpful advice for his son other than just like, you got to try harder. It was very vague and nonspecific and it was not, uh, I mean, he was very accepting, which I guess is, is, can be a good quality. In that circumstance. It's almost like he's just resigned that his son is a screw up and that's going to be that. Yeah. But he does encourage him. He tries to give him a little carrot, you know, later on in the film to, to, to motivate him. But it's it's just not very serious. It's really not. And it's not. nothing in this is really that serious. So just <laughs> as, as a father, he feels very wishy-washy at this point. And you start seeing in this part why. I describe this as a Hallmark horror movie because you can immediately tell when you meet characters that they're supposed to be important to the story and they just haven't told you why yet. And you have to try to kind of figure it out um, because they just have this idea of how all these characters relate and they didn't write the movie in a way that introduces them in a meaningful way. So we're introduced to the son, you know, he's just dropped out of college and so that's it for the, for that family. They're they're pretty much ready to go. But then you start meeting other characters. So there's there's a, a cashier in a gas station, and we don't know why she's apparently going to be a character in this movie. You know, it's just our our, our here the, she is. Yeah, the son Ben is kind of flirting with her. You know, you know I'm new to town, that kind of thing. And someone else comes in, who also now is a character in the film. And it turns out that it's the cashier's mom, who the cashier does not live with. And it just... A, a lot of telegraphed moments in this movie. Like that you, you see coming a mile away. Yeah. It's like, these are the people in the movie. Like... Uh, So shortly after they move to this town, so, you know, Dr. Chambers says he's relocated his family to this town. He wants to work in a less stressful ER, less stressful hospital. You know, get it. You get the feeling they're trying to get out of the city. And, uh, you know, find a better place to raise his family. And almost immediately, his little son, Nathan, Starts uh, being taunted or tormented by some shadowy figure that either calls to him from the woods near the house or calls, you know, calls to him from his bedroom when he's trying to sleep at night. And there's a lot of uh, the mother almost immediately just kind of like subconsciously knows that like something's amiss and that something's wrong. And she tries to, you know, explain to her husband, John, that, hey. We need to put up a fence around the house. We need to keep this, keep the little boy inside because apparently nobody is actually doing a decent job of watching him. 
not the uh, not the pregnant mother and later when the uh, the older son shows up he doesn't do that great of a job either and our doctor john who's supposedly a doctor at the local hospital but never seems to be there to do any any work of any kind he's not around to watch anything either but you, you get early on that, you know, almost immediately the mother has like an intuitive sense that there's something out. Something's just not safe. Yeah, because every time he goes near the woods, she freaks out big time. She does. She's always, you know, she's running after him or banging on the window or uh, she does a number of things where she just gets really worked up about it as soon as he goes into the woods or, you know, out of view. Which, I mean, turns out that's for the best in this movie, but uh, that's kind of just, you know, her character, she's just always worrying about um, him being she, outside. She comes off as overprotective, you know. Yeah. And, and you find out later in the film too that she had had a previous miscarriage, so maybe she's extra protective of this one just because of that. Right. And uh, before long, uh, the father also, John, he also uh, starts having uh, visions, if you will, and nightmares and and night terrors of various kinds. You know, sensing that there's something in the room, having almost like out of body nightmare experiences, which along with the the son, the child's, they slowly escalate into uh, incredibly unnerving experiences for them. And everywhere they go, when he when he tries to talk to his doctor colleague at the hospital, when he tries to talk to local law enforcement, he's really blown off and. You know his uh his worries and concerns are really dismissed. Yeah, very out of hand. Yeah, his colleague at the hospital just says it's sleep paralysis. You you've been under a lot of stress, and this is you know just kind of a natural thing people go through. And for your son, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you're, you're moving, you've got a lot going on, and this is just something that happens in high stress situations. Um, but the thing is, we never see him do any actual doctoring, so it's like we don't get the same feeling that he's actually going through a lot. It's just like they're hanging around the house and then it's stressful when the little kid is running away. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be a lot of stress like involved with their new house. They seem to be unpacking at a very leisurely rate, like their bedrooms all set up and everything. It's not, you know, it's a very like quiet, idyllic, beautiful new England town. You don't get the feeling that there's like a lot of undue stress and, 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 traumatic events or anything going on in in anyone's lives there other than these night terrors yeah so yeah the um he's just kind kind of trying to figure out what's going wrong with him but he's with the son he's very just positive and he keeps telling this the younger son you know everything's going to be fine uh you know if you see because the son keeps saying that there's a man coming into my room at night and he's telling me to go into the woods or he's telling me you know, what, uh, what I need to do. And the dad just says, Oh, well just tell him no. Like, you know, his advice, just, just don't pay attention. Tell him you want him to go away and you don't want to talk to him anymore and everything will be fine. Yeah. And that's, that's not the right advice for this, this situation. As it turns out. Yeah. And, uh, so while all that's going on, Dean Booth is getting, you know, the, the guy whose daughter was snatched away four years ago, he's still around the town. Just apparently drinking and wandering around looking for his daughter. No, the other thing, though, is they never really explain for sure if he was actually drinking or not. 
because he they might just have thought he was crazy. Okay, true. So it, it's debatable whether he was actually drinking or not, but he definitely was going crazy. So Dean Booth, who's probably just going crazy, is yeah. walking around town looking for his daughter. He accosts the chamber's young son uh, in, in in a wooded area near like a little pond and you know, John, you know, John and Ben, his son, older son freak out and they, the cops are called. They take away Dean. And then while all that's going on, tow truck lady, who was the mother of the cashier at the mini marts, all just kind of watching from across the streets, you know, so you just get, you know, it's just kind of an unnerving thing for, for everybody there. Like something else is going on in the town, which is like what you alluded to before. You know, they keep getting blown off about, you know, something weird going on. But it seems like there's a lot of people in town who know something's weird's going on. It definitely feels like a whole lot of people are in on it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, like, later, you know, when Nathan is taken to, you know, uh, Nathan's at school, tow truck lady kind of goes up to him and talks to him, wants to find out what Dean Booth said. That's like, you know, people know, you know, everyone seems to know each other here. And she says that, you know, he's, he was my friend. I just want to know what he said. And you get that feeling that, you know, his kind of what seemed like crazy ramblings, like maybe she put stock in, um, the things he was saying. He's saying there's, there's these shadow people and they're coming for your family. And, you know, he has like these theories about what's going on, but everyone else just says, no, that's. You know, he's just crazy or he's drunk or whatever it is. So she's at least someone who believes him. And you get the sense that the wife is just trying to get by. Um, I don't know if she believed him until later on. Booth's wife? Right. Yeah. She was just, you know, trying to deal with the grief of, of losing a child and... Having a crazy husband. And, and yeah, keeping life together. Like she still got her job at the, re- you know, the reception area at the hospital. Right. You know, somebody's got to pay the bills in that crazy town. Mm-hmm. So a short time later, uh, you know, John walks into the garage. He sees his son looking at this really nice, fancy car that he was dangling as a carrot to be like, hey, if you go back to college, you can have the car. And, you know, they, they talk for a minute like, hey, you want to go for a drive? They go and drive for a little bit and they, uh, they're just kind of talking and chewing the fat and driving down like a wooded road and Boom. There's uh, Booth's wife, um, Christine, just out in the middle of the woods and like, hey, all my, you know, my my husband's got a gun. He's not doing well. So, you know, John goes to the house and finds, uh, you know, he finds Dean in his living room with all these beautiful candles lit. Very ceremoniously, I might add, Very, you know, probably scented candles, too. And he's got a shotgun and he's all he's been talking to some apparition of his daughter which wasn't really his daughter, and he knew it wasn't his daughter. It was one of the weird shadow creatures that took his daughter. You know, and he apologizes to everyone, and he kind of realizes that John has been seeing the same things too. And, you know, he warns John to, you know, protect his family, and then he kills himself. Uh, Shotgun to the head. And the local law enforcement really, again, they blow that off because, you know, that's what cops do, apparently. When a black man blow, you know, when a black man dies, it's not a big deal for police in this country. 
and especially not in this town where any authority figures really pretending like everything's a-okay. And it's pretty much after Dean's death that things really begin to escalate in earnest for the Chambers family. The uh, hallucinations really ramp up. The, uh, the nerves creep. The lights flicker more often. Lots of little things that just keep adding up and up and up and up. And eventually... Uh, eventually one night, uh, you know, the mother Heather goes to take a bath after putting the, the son to bed with her phone so he can play some games and, you know, again, lights, more candles, candles are big in this film, you know, wants to take a nice relaxing bath, just kind of, you know, deal with everything that's been going on. And the little boy's door opens, his closet door opens and it's very creepy and he, he's using the the phone to take pictures and meanwhile like uh heather's in the bathtub and the candles go out and everything gets dark and another shadowy figure emerges and tries to drown her the other shadow figure kidnaps the kid and uh dr john has to come to the rescue as well all this is going on ben is also having an experience uh where he goes to a party with a bunch of other kids and his, you know, his cashier girlfriend and they, they dare him and it's really stupid, but they dare him to do, to join their club by doing, uh, by walking through a tunnel. There's this old tunnel that is like two and a half miles long and he has to walk through it without a light. So he goes in to, to try to prove his, you know, that he's a macho guy and get into this club but while he's in there, the, the people that dared him to do it jump him and start beating him up. But then the shadow monsters come and uh, start doing terrifying things to them. They just absolutely toss their salad. One guy gets kidnapped and then explodes. And then the other one, we don't really see what happens to him. But, the, you know, the two two assholes never make it out of there. So all of these things kind of kind of coincide. They're all, everything is really ramping up for the whole family. So, uh, so the dad shows up and he gets to the bathtub where the, his wife is basically drowned at this point and he pulls her out and he does his first doctoring act of the movie, which is try to resuscitate her, uh, with mouth to mouth CPR. And he does, a, you know, okay, listen, I'm not medically trained, but I've seen enough movies of actual CPR being done. And this did not look anywhere of that caliber of TV slash movie CPR. This was not first aid approved. I, I just was not convinced that he knew what the hell he was doing. Yeah. It really kind of broke the, uh, the suspension of disbelief. And then the funniest thing was he finally gives up. Like she's gone. There's nothing he can like do. She, she's, she's, she's dead. And like 20 seconds later, she just spits up some water and starts breathing again. <laughs> yeah. So, so to wrap up the summary, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, so John, (laughs) are you going to get yourself out of this one, buddy? So, so, so to wrap up the summary, so John, you know, he find, you know, so he resuscitates his, he kind of resuscitates his wife. She resuscitates herself, tells him, Oh, they took the boy. You know, she believes now she was. She was kind of the uh, the doubting Thomas earlier in the film, but now she's become a believer. 
and they decide, okay, all right, we need to, we need to do something and we need to get our, our son back. And, you know, so he starts, you know, so they, you know, they, they call the police, you know, cause the police are supposed to help. I mean, that's the idea, I guess. Not like it ever actually happens in this film. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the chief of police or the, I, I or share yeah, chief. Yeah. He's a chief. He shows up and he's one who's been kind of pretending everything's okay. He confronts John and, you know, pulls a gun on him when he realizes that John believes that these things exist and they get into a tussle and, you know, very conveniently, uh, John's son, Ben with his girlfriend, Nikki, who was the chief's wife, uh, daughter and then the tow truck lady which was his ex-wife they all show up and you know the truth comes out that you know the chief has been actually concealing the existence of these things because he uh, bartered for his own daughter's life years before with these things and sacrificed a couple of boys that he had kidnapped now if it sounds like all of this this plot summary and synopsis is really fairly straightforward i would like to point out that it isn't we really digested this one for you. This is a this this whole movie is a big jumbled mess. So this is this is the best I think we're going to be able to do. But information. The, the, the real yeah. problem is that we pre, we've presented it to you in a way that makes kind of sense. Kind of sense, right? And the movie presented in a way of just a whole bunch of things happening one after the next, without really a a thread of like. Like I, I know story is the wrong word because it is a story, but there's not a logical story being told. So the final scene, just to go back just a moment. Mm-hmm. Long story short, they go back to the tunnel because that's where Nathan, the boy, is. The dad bravely marches in there with his shotgun. He, you know, he gets swooped away. They, they cough up the kid, and. You know, the next morning he wakes up and, oh, we got, he's, he gets out of the tunnel and then he goes to his house where he goes to see his family and he realizes that he has become a shadow man. And then that, then roll credits on that. And, and, oh my God, just what a mess. What a mess. All through the film, the, these creatures target children. And at the end, this wrinkly, squinty-faced man, that's the one they're going to take and they're going to cough up the kid that they have been trying to to taunt and to lure for the entire film. So that, that did make a lot of sense. Um, let, let's talk about the party scene for a moment mm. with, with all the random teenagers that we never saw before. You know, because all through this movie, you get the the feeling this, you know, it's a pretty small town. You know, well, fairly small town. Uh, the only person of like college age that you ever encounter is Ben, who's not even from there, who doesn't know anybody. And then he meets this 18 year old cashier. I can't remember exactly what what else was going on in the film. But things were just starting to get interesting. And then all of a sudden... Well, he and he was Ben was just going to pick the girlfriend up from the party. From the party, yeah. So we could go somewhere else and do something interesting. Yes, because we were already just at an interesting scene with Doctor John Chambers somewhere, and then just randomly they just wedge in like this like teen party scene out in the woods. Mm-hmm. 
with these two just like real jackasses, like immediately just, you know, giving him trouble and, you know, trying to get him uh, to, you know, basically saying like, are, are you chicken? Or are you going to, you're yeah, going to you know, do this? Like, are you like, well, they're trying to kick him out, but he can stay if he goes through the initiation. Right. They, they want to, okay. they want to haze him pretty hard. They want to haze him pretty hard. And, like the moment he shows up, his girlfriend's like, "Get out of here! You got your car? Let's get out of here! I want to get out of and here." She wanted to leave, and they were literally on their way out. And he wanted to leave. He wanted to leave, and we all wanted them to leave. We wanted them to leave. <laughs> Everybody wanted them to leave. The jackasses at the party wanted them to leave. He wanted to leave. His girlfriend wanted to leave. You, me, and my niece wanted him and and her to leave. But but the storyline is that they needed to get to the tunnel. Oh, okay. And so that's they, the only way they could think of to get the two of these people to the tunnel. For no good reason. So they could show the shadow monster killing someone. And it had to just be a throwaway character. So we quickly introduced these jerks so you wouldn't feel bad about it when they died. And and they weren't okay, and they were the kind of jerks that Oh god, what's the best way to put this? They were the kind of jerks that were dialed up way past eleven. Mm-hmm. They were, they were like the kinds of jerks that jerks think jerks are, if wow. that makes sense. Wow. Like they were, they were, they were pricks. Big time. And, and then some, and they, I mean, they went extra on that, which is funny because in stark contrast to how flat some of the other acting is. And by some, I mean the vast majority of it. Yeah. The tow truck lady, very flat performance. Her daughter, Nikki, the cashier, very flat performance. Ben, the college dropout, right. very flat performance. And before this, too, they've never shown that Ben's got something to prove or like that he would, you know, he would, if someone challenged him, he would just go for it. Like, there's nothing in his character that, that says that. It's kind of like the whole, you know, uh, Marty McFly, like, yeah. you know, they call him a chicken and he can't back down. Ben is not that character. No, so they, there's no reason that he was going to do this initiation. They, uh, it's the the writer or oh, the writers in this case basically make assumptions about what we think about this character, and then it's like you just assume because he's a young guy, you know, a young college age guy that he's going to have like this this thing to prove to people, or that he's going to actually care what people think. I mean. I, it was believable to have like this kind of party scenario in a sure. small town because that's very, you know, very I've common. I've been to them. I get it. So they just thought, you know, okay, this is a believable idea to get them in this situation. But it rubbed us the wrong way. Well, he's not from the town. He doesn't give a shit about any of these people. He's just after, he just wants to spend time with the girl that he's, he's there to see. And he's going to go back to college. And he's going to go back to college anyway. He's not going to stick around. What the hell does he care about what a bunch of drunk townies think? Yeah. You know, he dropped out in the first place. What? And he wasn't really worried about what his dad thought, apparently. What the hell does he think? These guys, I mean, who they, who the hell, get, why would anybody care what these jackasses think? It, it does not compute. Yeah. So not only does just wedging that scene in there not compute, mm-hmm. but the setup for it is crap. Right, and what what's another good example of something like that? Okay, here's the other one. Doctor Chambers, 
is very concerned about his family. Very. So he frantically is calling home to make sure they're okay or whatever the situation. I don't remember exactly. It was something like that. He's like, oh, I really need to make sure everything's okay at home. Then the next scene, he goes to a bar. And orders a neat bourbon. And needs a drink because he's just had a lot of stress. It's like he urgently needs to help his family. But instead, he has to have this scene because they need an excuse for him to have a scene with the sheriff. And it has to happen at the bar because that's what you do in a small town. And it's just another one of those scenes where like, it does not make logical sense with the urgency of the scenario. No. And they just had to have a, a scene where you had like, you have this feeling he's not really that into the sheriff guy or, you know, to sh- show what kind of character they are and how their relationship is. But it just comes across as really clumsy and out of place. This whole film is clumsy and out of place is the problem. But that's what they, I mean as far as like they came up with a bunch of scenarios of things you do in a small town and just thought that was interesting enough to stitch those scenes together where it doesn't really make a story. I mean, the story is, yeah, this family getting harassed by these shadow people, but it's not a story in the way of like something meaningful is happening or having in a meaningful order. It's because things aren't the events that take place in the film like that have nothing to do with the story. Right. There's, yeah. And they well, just. Okay. But like their quote unquote story is really that the sheriff is behind. It knows about the problems. And the only way they can. The way that they introduce all those characters is so clumsy. Because it doesn't introduce them a way that that's, that that matters at the end. Well, it's not done in a natural way. Like nothing, like nothing happens as a result of the story. Like if you introduce a sheriff as this really great guy. That everyone loves. Yeah. And then at the end, it turns out that he's, in, you know, helping the shadow people out. That would be an interesting way to make that story happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he's never introduced as like a super swell guy. He's just a dude. And that a fact that it's the girlfriend's dad doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter at all. The fact that the tow truck mo- lady is the mom doesn't really doesn't matter. matter. It's just like that's, they had, they like, okay, this is that family that this happened to before. And we're going to make them these characters so that they have something to do in the movie. Yeah, I mean that was all done for convenience. I mean there was there was no they none of them needed to be related. And the problem I really have is I get the the feeling they thought they were clever, like that this was clever writing. Uh, that's a problem with a lot of these like free on YouTube movies is the people making them do seem really pleased with their own brilliance, and that's the problem. Yeah. They think that they have done such a, you know, that their direct to streaming movie is just this fantastic work of art that's really going to captivate people. So we've discussed that the story's got some problems. The writing has definitely problems. Um, I think you you encapsulated that the acting is rather flat throughout throughout the film. Um, Even Dr. Chambers, like the star of this piece of crap, he, even he... Only has like two, three expressions. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got like the concerned, uh, squinty, wrinkly face look. He has the scared, squinty, wrinkly face look. And he has like the angry, you know, I mean, he just. Uh, and his face is strange from every angle. It is. It's one of the fascinating things about Brian Krause's face. It gets weirder the longer that you look at it. Uh, it doesn't matter on the lighting. It doesn't matter on the angle. There's just, I mean, we've seen him in fluorescent lighting. We've seen him in like soft, 
room lighting. We've seen him in the dark. We've seen him outdoors. We've seen him at night. There's not one flattering angle on this man's face. And he just looks more and more alien the longer you look at him. Mm-hmm. It's just like at one point it was like two beady eyes and just like a like a spider's web of wrinkles emanating from the center. It in much the same way uh that Dean Booth's character's voice, you know, the the Barry White voice was very singular and distinct. It's like you you hate it because it's like, uh, but you like it because it's so unique. And I have a similar love-hate relationship with this man's just features. It's unusual they're 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 bizarre and i you know but because they're unique there's something interesting about them true not necessarily a good interesting it's more like driving by a car wreck on the highway interesting but nevertheless it gets your attention you couldn't look away you couldn't look away (laughs) so uh, given all of those things i think the thing we could probably best talk about with this movie is the look I will say that the look of a lot of things was pretty good. Um, uh, cinematography, yes. Um, the man who who was the cinematographer, so Scott Peck. Yeah. So it was uh, the small town looked great. Um, it's in fall, so the you know full fall colors on the trees and all that. The atmosphere was really good as far as a lot of the shots and stuff like that. The way, the way that they were the way that the the shots were staged was beautiful the the lighting was really fantastic in all the scenes it doesn't look like a cheap film by any stretch mm-hmm. like it's all composed and put together really well as far as that goes um even the um like uh the creature effects were decent um and sometimes it, sometimes those creature effects are a bit jumpy mm-hmm. and a little bit out of focus which is kind of a modern motif and they did do a lot of that. And it was it, it was effective enough. I will say the reason it worked for the most part is that it was supposed to be dreamlike. So I was okay with the fact that it was mostly out of focus because it's mostly just the shadowy shapes. It is people in costumes. It is. So it is, you know, it's real. But the parts of the costumes that you see clearly, like like in one case, like you'll like you'll see a hand a couple of times, or you'll see like part of a like of, of like a greasy black like hard skull. Yeah. So the little bits that you do see in detail do look good mm-hmm. and they are a little bit unnerving sometimes. And yeah, you have, you do make a great point that, you know, they're, they're presented in an intentional dreamlike way, which, cause a lot of people can't see these things. You, they only see them like in their peripheral vision. Yes. And so, so, so you see a lot of shadows just escaping off the, uh, the side of the screen. So that is a very fantastic way to rationalize a low budget for your effects and also to obscure them. It it makes sense for the film, and it actually is effective for what we get for that. Um, I wouldn't say most of those encounters were scary. Um, no. The one with the, the tub and uh, the kid with the phone in the room, that those, scene was probably the best one. That, that, that was a well-done scene. You know, you've, you've, got two, you've got two scares kind of coming at you at the same time. You don't know which one's going to pop first. And they, they build the tension very well in that one. Um, and just elsewhere in the film, it's like when something gets interesting, they just cut away to something less interesting. So the editing in this film is, is crap. Uh, a gr- one great example too is 
Dr. John's walking around in what looks like nurse's scrubs, you know, with a, with a hospital gurney and another, um, a, a nurse there and the lights kind of flicker. Cause apparently whenever these things show up, the, the electricity goes out, they must not have a very good utility out there. That's a small town. It's a small town. Maybe they have spectrum and, um, or bright house. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, so they're walking down this hallway, you know, lights are flickering, they're looking around like, Oh man, whatever. And then just like an immediate scene, we see Dr. John in his, in his office maybe, or at home in his home office. I think it's his work, his hospital office. Yeah. But like a completely different set of clothes, you know, you get the vibe. It's a different time of day or something. And he's making a phone call. Just to check in on something. Just really sloppy sequencing for things and editing for that. Yeah. And I think that goes hand in hand with the fact that, the, that we never see him do any work. You know, he's no. at the hospital. It's just him walking around. You know, he's got a clipboard or he's in his office. And if they really would have incorporated that into the movie, like it didn't matter in this movie that he was a doctor either. Not at all. Just the fact that he moved to this new town and he was like a someone that was like a member of society. You know what I mean? Like a doctor is like a community person. He could have been like, he could have been a, a trash collector with a son who just like left the coast guard. True. After a couple years stint. It's, I mean, the occupation is completely meaningless to this film. It was an excuse for them to have a big house, you know, and he was the only person working in the family. It's like, okay, well, a doctor, I guess that, that tracks. Yeah. But I mean, in a small town too, you know. Yeah, that's true. It could have been a double wide, and the father, the father worked at the local Circle K. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, what, what should be more? I don't know. I don't know what. Listen, would shadowy people in a, in a big mansion like house be scary, or a shadowy person like in a single trailer? <laughs> Okay. The shadow people of the trailer because park. Because the the shadow people of the trailer park, that would be a scary thing because in in a in a singular trailer, there is not that many places to run or hide or go. All I know is if I ever make a movie called The Shadow People of the Trailer Park, it will take place in Florida. Yes, it will. Florida is it's like one third churches, one third hospitals. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe, okay. Maybe like 10% churches, 10% golf courses, 50% trailer parks, and the remainder is amusement parks, I think. It's pretty close. That's the state of Florida right there. It's pretty close. So, uh, so music, music and sound editing was decent. Yeah, it was okay. You know, it was atmospheric they used, music mostly. They used those, uh, I will say, when they were in the forest, they used those annoying kid laughing sounds. Like those samples, <laughs> yes, of just generic kids laughing, <laughs> and that that annoyed me. Yeah, that that the sound of children laughing always annoys me. <laughs> but like the rest of the sound effects were fine, I thought. The the creature, the actual creature effects were fine. Um, the whooshing sounds were good. the The music was appropriate for the film, and you get a little bit of good background music, like when radios and stuff were on. Yeah, you know, so it didn't feel like a very like a, a like an a sonically sterile environment. And the mix was pretty good as far as it didn't get too high and low. It, it nothing took over. Yeah, it was balanced. So 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 cinematography and sound editing, I'd say, you know, were, were wins on this one. They were the only things keeping this film watchable. 
literally because if if the if the cinematography had been crap and the sound editing was crap, we really would have been in trouble. We wouldn't have made it very far before we were cringing. It's amazing how it's not even just what you say, but how you say it that can make so much of a difference in this. <laughs> uh, let's also talk about our okay, so our our best and worst performance in this, in this film. Uh, I think we agreed that there was a young cop. Uh, in this film, who wins for like most extraneous character? Basically, he's working for the the chief of police, who's the father of Nikki the cashier. After the incident at the tunnel where the guy gets hazed and the two jerks die, you know they take Ben to the station. Nikki's there too. She just has to sit there, you know, with this young dipshit cop who doesn't know how to do anything and you know, lets her just quote unquote, check her Facebook on a, on a police computer and print a photo quote unquote from the police printer. And then just magically steal the keys while she's going to go, go to the restroom. That guy was useless. We can all agree. And he, you know, and it's funny cause we really thought he was going to get his uh, just desserts, you know, like, Ooh, the lights are going out and everything. And the shadow things are there. We never see what happens to him. No. He totally should have gotten uh, swooped or killed or something. They wasted, they could have had a lot of opportunities for tertiary kills in this movie, but it just wasn't that kind of movie. It just wasn't that kind of movie. So that was, that was, uh, that was a mess. He would have been a great one to just, just off in a great bloody gory way. Cause the actual blood in this film is very minimal, mm-hmm. incredibly minimal. Yeah. In fact, I can only think of one instance yep. where we actually see blood. And even that is is it's quick and done. Like the blood comes from off camera onto somebody. You never actually see Right. You never Oh, I well, oh, I guess the other one would be when Dean Booth kills himself. You get like a split second of like Hardly. You really just see him just Yeah, I guess it's more of the flash. More of the flash. Yeah, you don't really see anything there. Yeah, so a fairly bloodless film for for something like this. It really relies on like tension and suspense, which it fails at because they don't sequence things right and they don't order things right and they cut away when they shouldn't. And like the stuff that happens isn't unnerving enough. Like if you really wanted to have nightmare scenarios, they really should have been tailored to the character and their fears instead of it just being this generic shadowy guy. Yeah, it really was way too generic in that regard. I mean, there's nothing in the in that whole concept for this film that I haven't seen elsewhere done better because it was, you know, there was something to it. It wasn't just a shadow guy. Well, I okay, okay, so like you know, at one point, you know, I turned to to turned to my niece and I'm like, you know, if you want to watch the good version of this, watch it. And specifically one of the newer, you know, the newer ones. Because essentially you have like this, this very creepy thing that's stalking children and the town seems to be oblivious to it. Okay. That, that's right out of it. That sounds very familiar. It's very, isn't it? And in that case, you know, Pennywise's uh, disguises and taunts and torments were all unique to each of its prey. Like he got under the skin of each kid in just the right way to really terrify them. And all of the spooks in this, oh, oh, that reminds me of something else I want to talk about. 
So all of the spooks in here are just, they're basically just the, the generic basics spooks. Right. You know, ooh, the lights flicker. Oh, there's a shadow against the wall. Oh, something's kind of creeping and crawling. Oh, the closet door opened. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, there's a monster in the closet. I mean, that's like the classic one, right? Jeez. And then, um, it's like, like the other really like, uh, cliche thing that they do. After Dean Booth kills himself, you know, his wife talks to, you know, finds Dr. Chambers at the hospital and gives him his journal. And he goes, you know, goes home later and he looks at his journal. And I don't know if you've ever seen any film ever in the last like 30 years where somebody who has seen something has drawn a picture of it. And it's got like that scratchy, like dark, you know, bunch of dark lines kind of converging into an image. And it's like the, you know, it's like, like Mothman prophecies comes to mind for that. And it's like, do they get the same guy to make those props for every single one of these films? Is is like is that the only kind of art that that guy can make? It's like one eight hundred dark sketchy drawing. <laughs> That's perfect. One eight hundred dark sketchy drawing. It's way too many numbers, way but too, somehow yeah, it works. But you know, you just abbreviate it. I. But I mean, as soon as I saw that, I just rolled my eyes. I'm like, really? That like that's the best you can do? Yeah. And it's always like with like a dark ink. It's never like draw something creepy in pastel. Or how about a watercolor? Or maybe just a, a, a really, you know, a pencil sketch. At this point, it's such a cliche of, do we really need drawings? Like, we've already seen the thing. We don't really need the character to see drawings. They're about to see it, too. Like. And, and, and in the case of those characters, they'd already seen it. There was nothing important about having the journal. It didn't. There review- was no secrets. There was no, uh, you know, solution to getting rid of it or, you know, anything like that. The only thing that it served when we saw it is, oh man, because, um, oh, because there, elsewhere we see in, okay, so that was Dean Booth's little journal. Uh, tow truck lady, she had a journal too with like the same kind of crap in it. I don't know if like the art like identically matched, but I mean, it was in the, still in the same style, mm-hmm. you know, like, ooh, scratchy. <laughs> <laughs> dark scratchy line art and you know and like the little boy sees it and he's like oh that's the man that hangs out over my bed i so that's just so that the tow truck lady knew that he was seeing it like that's all the serve the purpose it served or that you know the or that the boy recognized that she had seen it i don't know the tow I mean, truck, it didn't really you know tow truck lady again pops up in, in an un, unusual way Oh yeah, where she During, was, she happened to be listening to the police scanner and hears that, you know, she needs to go to the police station because her daughter's there. I I, I really wasn't paying that much of attention like, at this literally, point. Literally, she's just listening to a police scanner, and then later on, she appears at the police station just in time to save them from the shadow monster. Yeah, when when uh, when her daughter and uh, Ben, the Ben, you know, when when they break free. And like the way that she rolls up too, it's almost like like uh, it's it was almost like the 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 personnel tank in Aliens how it just kind of busts open and boom there it is. I you know that was funny. 
I guess it makes sense that the tow truck lady would have a police scanner because she's in the business of towing things. You know, it's like, why not know if there's an accident, you can go be on the scene to be like, offer your services. She kind of like an ambulance chaser, but for tow trucks. There's a difference between things making sense and people just being places at the same, at the exact time because it fits the circumstance. And that doesn't make it good in writing. Ken, are, are you insinuating that this was not a well-written film? I'm saying I could drive a jump dump truck in between the holes in this story. Only a dump truck? What about the, uh, what was the name of that ship that got stuck in the Suez? I, have, yeah. I don't yeah. think that thing would have had any trouble getting that's, through. That's a good, good, good yeah. one there. That, that'll date this podcast as well. <laughs> that's already long over with. But. Um, the... Uh, Here's another one I thought of afterwards. So, before we head into the tunnel for the final time, they have the conversation in the kitchen. The dad knocks the sheriff out, right? When he realizes that the sheriff is a big meanie. Where the hell did the sheriff go? Uh, the sheriff got knocked out, dude. Right. Yeah, so he's, still, he's just sitting on the kitchen floor. We go back to the house at the very end of the movie. Well, yeah, he's still on the kitchen floor. He's knocked out, dude. <laughs> Oh, it's wait just, a minute. It's Ken, all completely forgotten. Wait a minute, Ken. Are, are you suggesting that we just very conveniently forgot about a major character? It's like once you knocked him out, then he just... He just... Was it like Mario Brothers? Like you jump on like the turtle? <laughs> yes. And it just goes away? Where and was, that's it? Where was Tow Truck Lady at the end? She was... Uh, maybe she was towing the sheriff's dead body where was to the, the hospital. Where was the girlfriend that was so concerned? They're just... They're not important, Ken. As soon as they served, listen, as soon as the characters served their purpose in their film, you never see them again. But that's why I'm saying that the writer thought they were so clever to have that final scene. Because they forgot all of the other important details that were... But it doesn't make sense with the rest of the movie. No, of course not. They just had a great idea for for a final scene. Like, oh man, let's make him a shadow man at the end. Meanwhile... You know, what about all the loose ends and threads? In In reality, they would all be freaking out and like calling in you know the government or whoever yeah you know know, something more would be going on you would expect the national guard would be alerted so anyway so so ken with these films we 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 have three primary so ken with these films we have three primary criteria that we like to that we like to talk about these are things that we keep in mind as we have our discussion right so those three categories are, is it well-written, is it well-acted, and is it well-produced? And uh, we talked about the production of it. The cinematography was really well done. Yeah. The way the shots were composed, the sets, the lighting. For this kind of film, with this kind of budget, I'm assuming this was a low budget. We don't have a number for this one. But, uh, yeah, they did a great job with that. They really did. Okay. So here's the next one. Uh, is it well-written? I think we just covered... Uh, that's a hard no. That's a hard no. That's a hard no. And well acted. Is it well acted? Gee. Um, considering that the most memorable thing about the acting in this film is the guy's weird face <laughs> and the other other guy's really weird voice, I'm going to say no, Ken. I mean, it's it's acted on a level that would be acceptable for TV, which is what we kind of realized that they did a bunch of TV actors um, that, that thing can kind of slide. 
I think, for, for a lot of TV shows like this. So... If this was a TV show. So there, there were a couple of actors in here that were actually on soap operas back in the 90s. Our lead, Brian, uh, Brian Krause, and then Michelle Hurd. Now, in the early 90s, I lived with my grandmother for a time, and my grandmother loved her soap operas. And I spent probably three or four months hanging out in the living room with the grandmother watching these, these soap operas. And I can tell you, the soap opera level of acting is a higher caliber than what we saw tonight. <laughs> okay. Absolutely a higher caliber, more, more enthralling. Yeah. Okay. More expressive. It was not as flat and as dull as this. Yeah. That's, and that's where I think the Hallmark thing comes in big time because that's what those movies are. They're very, they're they're fairly emotionally flat films. Lots of just lots of people who want to act and want to work, but don't know how to actually act yet, or maybe they never did, and they just want to make a paycheck and put and, a credit and, next to their name. And what they have to work with isn't great, you know. No one's saying that like that they ruin this masterpiece, but yeah, I mean it's not like uh, it's not like the the director of this film has uh, done much of note. Let's take a peek real quick. So, Drew Gabruski, uh, his big claim to fame is uh, Be Afraid, which he directed in 2017. <laughs> Guess what? Okay, so he's done mostly work as a cinematographer, and he's got, you know, a couple of TV credits for directing. So, I mean, he's really an inexperienced director, you know, but the fault's not all him because he's not the one who wrote this piece of crap, you know? So, it's... Uh, you know, really, it's just people trying to get together and just trying to to make a living. You know, like th- this is a, a a product. This is not art for sure. The good news, the good news, is that these people have not been trusted with future films at this current point. So we won't hopefully stumble upon another production made by these people. Uh, this is true because uh, one of the writers of this film has you know, his only credit is this film, and the other writer. Uh, he had two other ones. Or he had three like other a couple ones. other ones. Okay, so the, the the main writer for this film, uh, he's also known for the Flesh Creeper, or sorry, the Flesh Keeper from two thousand seven, and the Quick and the Undead from two thousand six. See, for a minute, I thought it was the Quick and the Dead, which I think was the the Sam Raimi film from the nineties, hmm. which is really good. Sharon Stone, Russell Crowe, you know, uh, Gene Hackman. Sam Raimi, that's a good film. The Quick and the Undead, I don't, I, I don't have high hopes. It's like a Western. Zombie Western there. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you get what you pay for sometimes. And sometimes you uh, get a free movie on YouTube. <laughs> that, that is was, what we received. That's what we received. So, uh, you know, be afraid, be warned. Yeah, don't watch it. Don't watch this. It's Skip not it. worth it. It's not worth it. We watched it for you. You can uh you can watch something else and save two hours of your life. Watch a watch a real horror movie. You know, maybe spend money on it. Just you know, treat yourself. You know, be good to yourself. You know, be good to your eyes. Be good to your heart. Yeah. Don't watch. Be afraid. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a wrap for tonight's episode here at the O and M Stockroom. We're your hosts, Brian McGarry and Ken O'Malley. If you enjoyed the segment of Complimentary Cinema, more episodes can be found at omstockroom.com along with links to our Patreon page 
and various streaming outlets. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next Wednesday with an all-new episode. (laughs) 